Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Margot Nykirk. And I'm Evan Gottesman. And I'm Eli Koaz. Guys, where are you recording from today? We're not all in New York. Well, I'm on my way to the Valley, not the Jordan Valley, although we will talk about the Jordan Valley later, but the San Fernando Valley or Los Angeles for the first ever live recording of Israel Policy Pod, which is going to be taking place this Sunday, January 26th at the Z3 conference. Exciting stuff, Evan. And I would actually, I would think that it would be great for us to record a podcast in the Jordan Valley as well. I think that would be great. At this rate, if we record a podcast in the Jordan Valley, we're going to be recording a podcast in Israel. So maybe that's something on the horizon. And some may say even greater Israel. Some Some. say that. I mean, I've always considered the Jordan Valley to be an integral part of Israel and Israel's security. But um, Do you know who else said that? uh, Benny Gatz? Bibi? I don't know. A bunch of Israeli politicians? All of the above? Maybe maybe we should uh, save that for our weekly elections quiz. You bring up a good point, Margot. There were two Israeli politicians, two particularly prominent ones, two whose names are both Benjamin, this week talking about the Jordan Valley and talking about Israel's potential annexation of it. And this has now snowballed into what appears to be the closest we've ever been to the release of the much-talked-about mythical Trump peace plan, which may not be so mythical anymore. The big news item of this week was when Benny Gantz came or came out and said during a tour of the Jordan Valley that he considers it critical for secu- Israeli security and that it's part should be part of the eastern defensive barrier in any future conflict. This has sort of snowballed and been an integral part of this new election cycle when it comes to talk of the uh, annexing the Jordan Valley and as well. But the, the, he had made a critical statement with that too, saying that it'd be in, in coordination with the international community. So whether it's an empty promise, whether it's significant, that's for us to debate. That's for us to get more deeply into personally. I think that this is not necessarily new information. It's very similar to or exactly what Benjamin Netanyahu had said earlier on. And I think it's part of Kaholavan strategy of trying to appeal to those right wing voters who may already be voting for Likud, though I don't know necessarily how much of a change that's going to make. Yeah, you're you're right about where the strategy is coming from. There's also another impulse here for Gantz, which is that he's trying to play catch up with Netanyahu and with the Trump administration, because the sequence of events leading up to his statements, Gantz had kind of been taken for a ride by the White House. He had a meeting with the U.S. envoy Avi Berkowitz, where he left that meeting with an understanding that the Trump administration wouldn't release its peace plan before the election. Gantz relayed that to a Kaholavan party meeting. Um, Of course, it's advantageous for Gantz to not have the peace plan come out before the election because the peace plan would almost definitely, and we, we seem to have more information about it today, which we'll talk about later, but it's going to be tilted heavily in Israel's favor. And so it's going to look good on the incumbent prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Despite that understanding that he came out of his meeting with Berkowitz, a week later, the U.S. National Security Advisor, O'Brien, then says that actually the U.S. isn't tied down by the Israeli electoral calendar, which is frankly, from my perspective, a joke, because if anything, the U.S. is paying very close attention 
the Israeli election calendar. They've had a very long time that they could have released their plan. And it's only in the weeks immediately leading up to this March 2nd election that all of a sudden we're going to see it. But in any case, the rug is sort of pulled out from under God's. And now he has to work in a context where he sees the U.S. plan coming. And so he tried to get the jump on the Trump administration and on Netanyahu. So he suddenly comes out and says, not only am I for Jordan Valley annexation, although, as you noted, Marco, with the critical caveat that it would only be in coordination with the international community, meaning it's not going to happen. But he also said, I want to see the Trump plan sooner rather than later, which is a reversal of his previous position that the Trump plan would be interference in Israeli elections. This seems to be a case of be careful what you wish for, because the Trump plan may well be coming in the next week. I think that Gantz made a bit of a miscalculation with that press conference. He wanted the headline to be that that Gantz was welcoming the U.S. plan, and instead he got the headline that Gantz supports uh, Jordan Valley annexation. Right. I think that the release of the Trump plan is going to be far more harmful to Benny Gantz than his Jordan Valley annexation comments because the comments themselves about the Jordan Valley, I think, will have a negligible impact on the Israeli electorate because, I mean, you look at the Jordan Valley Regional Council, the settler leader in that area saying that Gantz's comments are an empty declaration, but this is a guy who's not going to vote for Kakhlevan anyways. And anyone for whom the settlements are their core issue probably wasn't voting for Kakhlevan to begin with. On the flip side, maybe, maybe you have a couple of left-wing voters who move over over to labor Gesher merits, but the balance of the blocks remains the same because these are parties that would conceivably sit with Kahol Levan. And it wouldn't be the worst thing for something to breathe a little new life into the Israeli left, which seems to be on the rocks a little these days. I, I think that the, the real focus and the real impact going forward is going to be what happens with this Trump plan. Obviously, it's expected that over 4 million Israelis will vote, but at the end, the election will come down to a very small group of voters that are deciding between blue and white and the Likud and maybe Israel Beitenu and other centrist parties. So a lot of these campaigns are just really directed at, at them. Benny Gantz went into this strategy because he was boxed in by the Trump administration. I don't think he wanted to be talking about Jordan Valley annexation, and I don't think he wanted to be talking about the Trump peace plan, but because the Trump administration seemed to go back on the understanding that he had with Avi Berkowitz, the American envoy, after his early January meeting, he was trying to get the jump on them and maybe regain some of the initiative in this conversation. I don't know whether that strategy is successful or the way that he handled it was the most adept, but I think that the the logic behind it is, is somewhat sound, even if the execution maybe leaves something to be desired. And it's not just about the content of the Trump plan. And there there's some talk about what will be in it. We should talk about that in a moment. But it's also the appearance. I mean, Eli mentioned that Netanyahu, who has invited Gantz to come with him to Washington, and the Trump administration has invited both Netanyahu and Gantz. And what this looks like then, the appearance that they're putting on is that you have the incumbent prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, going to Washington with a guy who is going to look like he's his lieutenant. He's his subordinate. There's no Palestinian involvement in this. So there's no 
actual agreement that's going to come from it, but it's the appearance that it puts on. And I think that's very dangerous for Gantt. What's interesting is during the day that uh, this trip is apparently happening uh, to Washington is the day that the Knesset deliberations will start on Netanyahu's immunity. And Netanyahu is expected, his immunity request will be rejected by the Knesset. And this is also significant uh, news because Netanyahu, he's now, he's fully indicted. I mean, he's not, these aren't investigations. He will need to go to court and he'll be going to the election uh, with uh, in, uh, a trial that will be upcoming. And that's, so right now, obviously, people are going to be talking about the plan for the next few days. If Netanyahu controls the agenda and we're all talking about this Trump plan, then Gantz is in serious trouble. The big question looking at the Trump plan and its impact on the Israeli election is the extent to which Israeli voters take seriously the substance of the peace plan, or if a big enough block of voters are able to identify that this isn't going to actually yield any rewards for Israel, uh, because on its surface for Israelis, it, it might look very good. And, and certainly, as you mentioned, Eli looks very bad for the Palestinians. I mean, there's there's talk coming out of uh, Channel 12 News in Israel that this would allow Israel to annex up to 30% of the West Bank. But, you know, that's not going to be a plan that the Palestinians are going to agree to. They're not part of this process. We're looking at this plan. We haven't seen the actual components of part of it, but Channel 12 has reported of some uh, rumors of things that might actually be in this plan. I wonder then if the Palestinians are not going to take this plan seriously, if this is clearly geared towards in favor of Israel and in terms of what they want in Jerusalem, in terms of what they want in the West Bank, the international community is not is going to look at this as if it's a joke. How much of a role does this current administration actually have a, like, a sincere impact in a two-state solution? Like, where, where, Can people actually look at this plan moving forward as if it is actually some sort of um, sustainable solution? No, like no chance whatsoever. If anything, this is more of an attempt to interfere uh, in a, another country's election more than it is a serious peace plan. And to push that point home, I mean, the Palestinians forget not being invited to Washington. They haven't even been uh, involved in discussions. And to make things worse, if the U.S., who were counting on a pragmatic uh, Sunni states like Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states to encourage the Palestinians to come to the table and to accept or at least entertain this U.S. plan. They're not even pressuring the Palestinians anymore. So this is really a plan or a document that's being thrown up in the air. It's something that I'm sure right-wing Israeli governments or future uh, Likud leaders will try to use as some benchmark for a future solution. But um, from the Palestinian perspective, this is, um, if we look at the last serious round of, of negotiations or serious like proposal that was laid out, which was uh, back uh, before Netanyahu in Annapolis in 2008, that included a Jerusalem that was, would be the capital of two countries. Uh, this plan has Jerusalem completely in Israel. It included land swaps that depending on what side, ranged between 1.5 to 5.5 percent, uh, roughly. Uh, and now we're talking about 30 percent annexation of the West Bank. We're talking about all Israeli 
uh, settlements pretty much being annexed. So yeah, this is not, I don't think this is a, a serious effort at making any progress when it comes to solving the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I hope the damage that it has will be limited and will be contained. But more than anything, this is just a way for the Trump administration to give Netanyahu this, I don't know if it's a lifeline or if it's a uh, kind of a gift to try to distract uh, Israelis from what these elections are actually about, which are Netanyahu's uh, indictments. Margot, you raised uh, the question of what substantive impact this has and, and how it can be read uh, in relation to a two-state solution. Can it be read as a sustainable peace plan? And as I think you've expressed and e- Eli has said, it's not. Eli mentioned it being a benchmark for the Likud party. I think more than that, it's also going to have a damaging impact here in the United States. I mean, we're going into an election year and up until the Trump administration and and starting to take shape under the Obama administration, two-state solution was bipartisan policy. What I think this could do is set a new group of parameters for the Republicans to leverage against Democrats. The Democrats will have the Clinton parameters developed at the end of President Bill Clinton's administration, and Republicans are going to have Trump parameters. Those are all really interesting points you you both bring up. Um, I think there's a lot left out in the open. I think there's a lot that we was going to unfold in the next week. So I think we just have to, at this point, wait and see what's in this peace plan, how that's going to affect the peace process, how that's going to shape the election. And as, as Evan brought up, how is this going to shape our election in the U.S. Um, in terms of how Democrats and Republicans uh, view the two-state solution? Um, but with that, I suggest, why don't we move to some announcements that we have? So as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we are doing our first ever live recording of Israel Policy Pod coming up this weekend on Sunday, January 26th at the Z3 conference in Los Angeles. And we really hope to see some of our listeners there. And it's going to be a great conversation. We're going to be talking about the Israeli elections. What else? And their impact on all of our core topics, including annexation and the future of a two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You can register for the Z3 conference at www.wisela.org forward slash Z3. There's also going to be an IPF Atid Young Professionals reception immediately following the conference, and we're going to have some debrief discussions about the topics that we talked about in the live pod and all over the conference. So it's a great opportunity. It's always great to meet listeners at our events. So we hope to see you there. Also in IPF Atid programming, we're happy to share two new events for our national young professionals community. The Women, Peace and Security channel will be featuring expert voices in downtown Chicago for the Leadership in Policy and Civil Society panel and networking reception. And that's on February 13th. So for those of you in the Chicago area, Mark that date down. Also, the newest chapter community for IPF Atid will be officially launched in... Drumroll, please, guys! Boston! So Israel Policy Forum's own policy director, Michael Koplau, will join the other to-be-announced experts from the community at Lamplighter Brewing Company on February 20th. 
So for those of you in Boston, put that date on your calendars, get your brew and get your policy information. And that's it for the IPF Atit announcements. Thanks, Eli. Um, yeah, so there's lots of exciting opportunities happening in our IPF Atit chapter or chapters around the, the nation. But we also have some exciting opportunities here at Israel Policy Forum. Um, we have a bunch of job openings in New York and D.C., um, both at entry and senior level. So uh, if you want to come work with us, I encourage you to visit www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash careers. And on it, you'll be able to find out more information regarding these job opportunities. And if you're also interested in IPFT news, uh, you can find more information on Facebook and Israel Policy Forum's events webpage to see the events that Eli had mentioned. Um for young professionals around the country. And you can always reach out to IPF Atid at atid at ipforum.org to learn more. So thanks for joining us for this week's episode and we shall see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>